Welcome to This Must Be The Place, the show that reveals the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. Today, John Marsloff joins us to chat about the relationship between humans and birds. In particular, about the ways such wildlife thrives in our modern, human-dominated world. He is Professor of Wildlife Science at the University of Washington here in Seattle. He also holds the James W. Ridgway Professorship in Forest Resources. His most recent work focuses on neurobiological perspectives, aiming to understand the amazing feats of corvids. These are birds such as crows, ravens, jays, and their kin. He enjoys blending biology, conservation, and anthropology to suggest how human and crow cultures have co-evolved. His work has been featured in a PBS documentary in the Nature series titled A Murder of Crows, and he has written numerous books on the subject, such as In the Company of Crows and Ravens and Gifts of the Crow, How Perception, Emotion, and Thought Allow Smart Birds to Behave Like Humans. John, it's a pleasure to have you today. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Eric. And what I really want to start with is, before we talk about corvids in general, I want to talk about you and a bit about the background on who you are and what was it about your past experiences and your passions that led you to this current interest? How, how did you flow into this interest? Well, when I was born, I was carried from my mother by a large raven. <laughs> <clears throat> Actually not. I had a um, very influential high school teacher. I think I was interested in hunting and fishing as a kid and was out in nature a lot, just as a child. And in high school, my teacher, Stan Roth at, in Kansas, really focused my energy on scientific uh, evaluation of nature and getting out, counting birds, observing prairie dogs and snakes and all kinds of things that were going on on the western prairies of Kansas. How did you develop an interest in corvids in particular? And by the way, while you're describing that, who are the members of the corvids family and what properties do they share that makes them part of that group? Yeah, so the corvids are a, a pretty large and diverse family of birds. There's about 150 species in the group. They include jays, some in the old world, but most in the new world in Central and South America, uh, including our Stellar's jay here or the blue jay in eastern North America. They also include all the crows and ravens around the world, uh, the nutcrackers, and the magpies. So um, they, they involve many different sorts of animals that share kind of a common general, generalist sort of behavior. There are a few specialists like the Hawaiian crow in tropical forests or some of the South American jays. But morphologically, they share kind of a, a very stout legs, good gripping feet, but not predatory feet like a hawk. They have a, a stout bill that they use to pry or probe or poke into places for food, and they share a large brain uh, relative to their body size <clears throat> so that they solve a lot of problems with memory and insight as opposed to uh, more robotic sort of behavior. Mm -hmm. So they're very flexible in their behaviors. They're also typically social, at least at some time of the year, being in big groups or very structured family groups. But there's a lot of diversity in this, this family in terms of behavior, morphology, and location. They occur everywhere on Earth except Antarctica. And what is it about them specifically? You talked about your, your background in Kansas and your teacher and all the, the cornucopia of animals that interested you. But how did you veer into the Corvid interest in particular? What was it? it it's definitely just serendipity. I went to graduate school. I was going to study nuthatches. They're a small bird that kind of works like a woodpecker along the, the bark of trees. And that was my intent when I went to grad school. And my advisor, Russell Balda, at Northern Arizona University, had been studying pinion jays for a long time, uh, several decades. And he proposed to me, hey, you know, I've got this great study. All these birds are marked. We know literally we had a lineage of who was mated to whom, for how long, who their kids were, where they were in this large society of a couple hundred birds that lived together in a permanent flock. And he said, I don't have a student working on it right now. Would you be interested? And I was like, well, of course, mm -hmm. who wouldn't be? We knew so much more about the individual birds, and that's what attracted me. We could look at their behavior. I was looking at their breeding behavior, and we could relate it to things like how old they were, how long they'd been with a particular mate, um, what their social status was in the group. All of these sorts of variables, which you would never be able to get on just a, you know, walking out and starting a new study on a bird. So as a grad student, I was looking at a couple-year study, and um, it was a perfect entry in mm -hmm. 
Like a lot of things, once you get into one group or one particular avenue of work, you tend to stick with it and you get better and better at it. And you just have opportunities that present themselves to stay within that group. So I did my master's and then PhD on those J's. Then I did a postdoc with Bern Heinrich on Ravens. And then when I came back West, I was able to um, get contracts to study Hawaiian crows and and some of the crows and jays here in the Northwest that are related to the mar- marbled merlet, which is a threatened species. And some of the corvids, most of them, I guess, are predators at some point in their lives. And so we was able to keep that interest in corvids going by looking at them from many different lenses mm-hmm. uh, as predators on a rare bird, as an interesting behavioral species, or as a cultural icon. It's interesting. Uh, just briefly, you mentioned serendipity and how you enter into a particular discipline. I can definitely relate because I started as a, as a pre-business uh-huh. major and I took a political science course and then I took a constitutional law course and then I said, hmm, I need philosophical background in order to understand constitutional law. And next thing you knew, I was pulled out of the traditional pre-business, pre-law and straight into the humanities and philosophy and history from there, right? Just serendipity. Yeah, right. But let's shift a little bit and, and can you tell me if crows or other corvids have a certain sense of place? Can you talk a bit about how they form connections to specific places and become rooted to them? Yeah, you know, the actual way they become rooted is not well known because you typically, when you start studying, they're, they're already rooted to a spot. But clearly, the territory for crows, uh, at least, and again, this varies with the species in this family, but crows are rooted very strongly to a to a particular territory. They defend it vigorously. They will kill each other over it. They stay there and uh, breed, gather their food for the most part on that territory for their lives once they obtain it. Prior to that, they they float. They're young birds for a year or two, most likely. Some may have stayed on their territory where they were born, helped their parents, eventually butt off a little. Uh, room, so to speak, of that territory and start their own family there. But most of them, at least in the Northwest, disperse as young birds. They'll float around the entire several hundred mile area. For us here, it would be the um, kind of the Puget Sound area up into Canada, down into Oregon, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And eventually they will also probably luck into a situation where there's a vacancy in a spot or a mate that's been, uh, its its other mate has died, and so it's available as a partner, and they will form partnerships with individuals and settle on a space. So I, I don't think it's like they're out looking for the, the perfect spot. Mm-hmm. They're wandering, they're trying to stay alive, they're eating as one and two-year-old birds, and just trying to get through every day, I'm sure, alive. And luck presents itself in terms of an opportunity to pair up or to take a space and they stay there. And then they become strongly attached to that place. So I guess that answers one of the questions I had is what makes them prefer one place over another might not be a matter of sort of a free form preference. I thought it was an abundance of food or other resources to help them thrive. Or I was wondering if there were other social or or heck, even like Corvid cultural factors that keep them in one place. Well, there's certainly, I mean, fundamentally, they have to have the right habitat. They have to have a mix of open and and forested or open and built space. So they've got a place to put a nest and food to obtain there. Absolutely, that's first first thing. But in there's a lot of that area around, right? Then these other factors, social opportunity, um, maybe cultural connection. It may be close to a historically used place for roosting or, or foraging that they know about. They've, ex- they've encountered during that year or two mm. of kind of vagrancy. And then they um, they would pick that spot. So that's interesting, and it, and it dovetails with a question I had around their their daily movement and migration patterns. What do they look like, and are, are there routines or reasons behind their journeys across space and time? And it sounds like maybe they find a migration pattern or a roosting. So I'm curious about what what factors make them migrate and choose certain patterns over others. Well, that strategy of migration varies across the range of the crow. So we just take that species. Um, you know, they live from the East Coast to the West Coast in North America, up through Alaska, and down through the deserts of the Southwest and, and into Mexico. So if you live very far north, and you're trying to get all your sustenance from one place, the typical strategy would have been to migrate during the uh, late fall when, when foods dried up, you would migrate south, follow food. 
That's not so much the case anymore because of our urbanization, mm. even of the far north, places like Anchorage or um, some of the northern towns in, in Canada, crows will stay year-round there now because there's food and relative, relatively a milder climate in a city as opposed to out in the country uh, in these northern areas. So some individuals will still migrate probably, maybe the subordinate or maybe the ones that have done this for a long time, and others will just go into the city and ride out the winter in the city on mm-hmm. the, the garbage and other sorts of resources that are available there. And, you know, I've seen them flying in, in groups, a murder of crows. Mm. Is it easy for a crow that is not associated with a pack to join one? I mean, what's the dynamic about, hey, let me join this flow? Yeah, I wish I knew the answer to that. I can only say that my best guess is that particular neighborhoods, you know, geographic locations, they probably move together towards a roost or move together to migrate at the same time because they're under the same pressures. And they're very, these animals are very socially cohesive. They're attracted to one another. Mm-hmm. So as some get, begin to move, others, unless something really important is going on with them, would just join and, and follow. Mm-hmm. And I think with migration, if birds are out foraging and on crops, let's say, for example, in northern Canada, and, and the harvest is pretty well done, they've eaten everything, those birds are going to start to get restless and, and they're going to start heading south and following food or responding to changes in climate uh, climatic conditions that allow them to move more easily, like following wind patterns that they can ride uh, more easily and move south in, in response to cues in their environment as well as one another. But then how they join these other groups is is unknown. They seem at these communal areas, there's no boundaries. Anybody can join anything there. There might be some aggression in there, but we don't really think very much. Mm-hmm. And so as long as you can find the group, you could join it. But if you are in a more structured situation, like perhaps a neighborhood where there are many territories, it could be very difficult for an, a strange individual to get in there because they don't know the even some of the local uh, dialect may be a little bit different and they may be recognized in that respect and chased out by the territory owners. Whereas the neighboring territories, they know one another. They don't continually chase each other because they've got that boundary set, but a new one comes in and and they're repelled by everybody there. So it could be hard to move into a more stable setting, but in terms of these large gatherings, be it a a roost or a migratory group or a foraging group in a a large field, let's say, I think they can come and go kind of at at their pleasure into those places. Something that struck me and made me do a, a mental double take when you were describing that was your usage of the word dialect mm-hmm. <laughs> and different dialects and yeah. different neighborhoods. There, I'm, clearly, there's some kind of language, whether it's behavioral response or something deeper, but there's variations that there, you've detected? Yeah. Individual mm-hmm. birds have, have distinct voices like you and I do, but also, um, and this was done in captivity, but I assume it also occurs in the wild, that Groups that are held together, if you try to introduce a new bird into that, if they don't utter particular phrases in their cawing um, lexicon, they're excluded from that group until they do. Hmm. It's fascinating. Like a password. And, you know, as I walk around, especially in in Seattle, I often see crows with small, colorful bands around their legs. Um, Sometimes my wife um, recognizes one of them and he calls it, there's the Rastafarian one because it looks like beads and and dreadlock hairs. Can you talk a bit about what those are and what kind of information they provide researchers? And are all those bands your fault in Seattle? Or Or my colleagues. Um, But yes, we put rings or bands on their legs. Um, The colors denote a particular individual. So no two crows has the same combination of colors on their right and left leg. We vary that. So we would know who the individual is when we see it again. The advantage of doing that is that we don't have to catch the bird again to know who it is. Because there'll be another band on there that's metal with a with a registered number with the federal government, and that's unique to an individual. But you can't read that with binoculars, for mm-hmm. example. So the color bands allow us to identify them readily. Know that hey, they're still in the same territory. They're mated with the same individual. They're still alive. And now this is you know we know how long they live. We know the areas they they traverse, how big their territories are and how that changes um, throughout the life of a bird. And what's the longest you have tracked a, a banded crow? One of our banded birds is, uh, it died after 18 years, mm-hmm. and it was banded as an adult at that time when we started. So it was at least 20 years old. 
And we don't know, hmm. you know, how old it was when we first captured it. During our email exchanges, as we were coordinating for this conversation, you mentioned that I should go to the University of Washington's campus in, in Bothell around sunset time between the fall and winter areas to, to witness thousands of crows flying in and mass from all directions. So my wife and I did that a couple months ago, and it was it really was unlike anything I've ever seen. Must have been 10,000 or more crows coming in. What struck me is they assembled on the roofs of the campus buildings, and it felt like they were all taking stock of the situation, agreeing that they had quorum before all then setting flight again and flying maybe 500 feet or so into the wetlands to settle for the night. I mean, that was an amazing experience, not because of the sheer quantity, but the sense of some kind of convention, mm. some organization going on. What exactly is going on with that ritual? Well, there's probably a lot. Uh, we understand some of it. And I think, I think the organization is, is what is quite interesting to me as well. Um, it's it's chaotic in some ways, a lot of noise, birds flying every bit, you know, getting up and, and rising and coming back. But it's also obviously very organized in that birds do come in and take stock of the situation. I think what's going on there is that when birds do finally settle in the roost, they're vulnerable, you know, and you don't want to be the first one in because what if there's a predator there, an owl or something that would snatch a single bird? So you want to wait until everybody's in, but you don't want to wait till the end because then you get the worst spot. Mm -hmm. So there's got to be some optimal point where an individual decides, okay, I'm going for it. And they go in there. And um, then you see that cohesion occurring there as well. As soon as some go, they all tend to go. That's probably, again, all rooted in, in safety. Those that didn't organize and go in with others were left out alone and they got preyed upon. So those genes were removed uh, from the situation and the behavior being very coordinated, cohesive, and waiting till the last possible good moment to go in the roost were favored over time mm -hmm. and because those birds succeeded uh, best. So I think that's the primary reason they're there and coordinated is to, to make a safe entry and exit from that vulnerable place then overnight where they're going to sleep. But they also, they've coordinated in terms of whether they even go to that roost or not. So some individuals are too far away to make that trip and they, they'll start another roost somewhere or they'll go to a different one. So there are many roosts around. That happens to be a very centrally located one where lots of birds go to. But birds might decide even on a day-to-day -day basis to not go to that roost. These young birds in particular, they might go somewhere else, maybe again looking for an opportunity to learn about a new place or a potential social opportunity. So the birds that are there are probably doing many things. They're looking at if I need a mate, are there potential mates here? If I don't know where to feed, are the birds coming in here well-fed so I might follow them tomorrow? And again, primarily, how am I going to get the, the perfect spot in there to spend the night and not get eaten by something? Because what struck me, I mean, I'm not a scientist by background, but I am a philosopher by background. And when I was looking at this behavior, I kept in my mind thinking about concepts such as, look how they're coordinating. Look how they're communicating. There must be some hierarchy or some leadership allowing somebody to go from this particular tree into the roost and everybody's following because they didn't go necessarily all at once. There were waves of action. So in my mind, I was filling in all this behavior with you know anthropomorphizing narratives on it. And I'm always curious to what extent am I justified projecting these kind of uh, leadership concepts and cultural concepts into these birds as opposed to you know, some antiquated behaviorist stimulus response notion of what they're doing. Perhaps it's an impossible question to look into the mind of these birds and see how much can we really attribute to them as they're doing this. I think it's a great observation and question. Um, I've, I'm certainly curious of that myself. I don't think it's so s simply stimulus response, although there's some of that. You know, you see a bird go, you're going to go. There, there might be some very simple rules that individuals follow to, to, to make it look very coordinated and organized. But I think these birds are so tightly organized around social status as well. And the amount of communication that's occurring there, there must be some other sorts of signaling and organization that's happening. And we don't understand that fully. And even if it does occur, we don't know for sure. But I don't think it's like there's a supreme leader of this group that mm -hmm. blows the whistle and everybody goes. I don't think it's nearly that coordinated. But I think there are many factions in there. And within those factions, there may be some leadership by dominant birds um, or older birds. 
Um, it's hard to say. We know that family members sometimes uh, get together at these times, and there may be, you know, long lost friends that bump into one another again. Uh, it's certainly, it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility. These are long lived birds. They they remember individuals, and there's no reason why they some of the communication and gathering isn't around rekindling these social bonds that are very important to this animal. It's just you'd have to have everybody marked mm-hmm. to really know how that happens. Is it always the first guy in every night or is it completely random who goes in and where they end up and those sorts of things? So mm-hmm. to know kind of the the social strata within that roost would be fascinating. And adding, I don't know, RFID technology or radio technology to these bands and having super sophisticated tracking, I guess that's possible, but it's just a, a matter of funding and, and might. To, yeah, to and sheer that. numbers. I mean, we, yeah. we've radio tagged hundreds of crows. We've followed them among different roosts. We focus more on young birds with that study because that's what we were interested in. But, I mean, you've got ten to 15,000 individuals there. Uh, and, you know, to put a radio, you couldn't catch them all to even put a radio tag on if mm-hmm. you wanted to. I think we might be able to do it more simply with something like DNA technology where you could look at the pattern of feces, for example, on the ground. Mm. If we could get DNA from feces, which I'm not sure if we can very reliably, then we might be able to see over day to day, do we see the same genetics showing up on the ground under the same tree every day? And you could get all of it. Mm. That was definitely a concern when we were looking and experiencing that because we were right between the the buildings and the roost. Yeah, they're going over you. <laughs> and right? They're going over me as I'm filming with this <clears throat> camera and thinking, uh-oh. <laughs> uh-huh, right. Yeah. And I think you've answered this this other question I had, but maybe we can explore it a little further about the social bonds that they form with others of their own kind. Because I could swear that I've sensed them having alliances with others near them as I'm walking, you know, through Seattle Center and at times have an adversarial attitude toward, towards others. So it sounds like they do have terrain that is theirs and there's, wars almost like a you know west side story crow wars oh yeah all over the place yeah no i think that we know very well individuals find a mate and they stick with that individual for life so those two birds that you see that seem to have a bond they have a very strong bond that could be 30 years long and they they anticipate and know each other's nuanced behaviors very well and they are very coordinated in their activities And they're very aggressive at defending their place, especially this time of year, the spring, when nests are being built and young are being raised, very aggressive at defending that place. Mm -hmm. Because any intruders they get in could potentially destroy the nest or breed with with the individuals that are there, reducing paternity or maternity. And that would... It could be a a big problem for especially males uh, that are trying to defend this place. Mm. And, you know, I've lived in Seattle for about 10 years now, and it strikes me that crows, and I don't know if there are ravens here, perhaps I've seen a few, a few, but not as many. They really love this place, and I see them flying around all the time. I see them dotting my route as I walk to and fro, eyeing me with curiosity. What is it about certain cities or geographic regions that are friendlier to crow or corvid activity than others, or or are they just promiscuous all over the, the region? It's becoming much more promiscuous, I would say, with time. As human populations increase, as we change the composition of every place we live to look like something that's perfect to a crow, which really is this mixture of a lot of open space, but some buildings or trees where they can place a nest. Uh, They don't like overall forest. They don't like overall grassland. But you think about our settlement, for example, where I was from in Kansas, we've created that to be much more savanna-like than prairie or here in Seattle. We've taken what was extensive forest, made it savanna-like. Both cases, we've taken areas that weren't very appealing to crows, if at all, and made them super appealing. So by our activities, we've expanded the the range at which this animal can live, and it's taken advantage of that. Some places more recently than others. So Seattle, fairly recent city. I think the birds, the crows that got here... Um, have had a good relationship with people the whole time. They weren't, aren't persecuted typically in a city. And because of that, I think crows in Seattle are as tame as anywhere in the world. I, it's really a strange phenomenon, but mm. the birds that are right in the core of the city here, you can get within a, a few feet of them. And that's not typical in places like Kansas City, where the birds are much, they seem much more reticent. 
Some of that may be because in the more agricultural areas that we now have cities within that are large and friendly to crows, they were harassed a lot in the agricultural setting, hunted, persecuted, kept out of uh, crops. And so those birds that now have come into the city, although they're not being persecuted as much there, they're perhaps a little warier than our birds out here on the West Coast are. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, how is that behavior learned? Is it uh, the young crows look at the older ones and see how confident they are around humans and just mimic that behavior? Or is there secret language that they're sharing? I think most time? of it is mimicry. I think, yeah. they, I think really the way young corvids learn from their parents is to watch and do what they do. If their parents approach people, the young birds may still be cautious in approaching, more cautious than a a knowledgeable parent, but eventually they'll get over that fear. Crows and ravens in particular are born very what we call neophobic, really scared of new situations and very cautious in those. And that pays off obviously for them. But if they see other crows or or their parents in particular acting in a more bold way, they take on that demeanor. Hmm. So yeah, I think you can get these. And we know this culture differs here between the city and the country. In the country, like I live um, about 25 miles out of Seattle, and it's still a fairly rural area. You cannot get within 10 or 15 feet of a crow on the ground, hmm. or they will take off. But in the city, I can walk within a couple of feet. And that's just a difference in how the majority of people treat those birds uh, as they're around them. And they seem to be birds that are in particular thrive in urban situations. There's a lot of raw material for them to use. I mean, I've where I live, my wife has set up sort of a, a copper Christmas lighting on the balcony. And sometimes one comes in and starts eyeing the copper and thinking about, you know, how to pluck it out yeah. and take it away. It's, it's a, talk a little bit about their ingenuity in an urban environment and what kind of raw materials they pick and take and use. Well, it's interesting. I mean, fundamentally, they exp- they basically exploit every kind of food available. And I don't know how they learn some of the things th- that they learn as food. Maybe by seeing people interact with it, putting in our mouths even, I don't know. Mm. Some things, maybe uh, noodles and things seem pretty easy. They look kind of like insects or worms. Other things like Cheetos, how in the heck they ever learned that as food, I I don't know. Popcorn, you know, some strange textures and items that they find and eat with abandon. So um, I think fundamentally that's the raw material they're getting in the city. But then when it comes to being innovative in building a nest. That's the other place where resources are limited. You need sticks typically to build a nest. Well, in some cities like Tokyo, they use coat hangers to build nests. They're like sticks, but they're available and there aren't sticks available in in some of the very um, dense urban areas. So they're very innovative. They'll nest on buildings as opposed to trees that is typical. And um, they'll utilize whatever materials look relevant uh, to a particular task. The shiny object, the copper that you mentioned, is is very interesting, and they are attracted to shiny things, and they may use those in ways we don't understand as status enhancement, mm-hmm. um, much like we do. Maybe even as gifts that they use, what they they provide to to um, places where they get reliable rewards. They may use these sorts of anthropogenic things to um, to keep rewards coming. And, there's, you know, I have read in your writings about that, that they understand the concept of exchange and yeah. reward, that in effect there's some type of Corvid economic system going on right <laughs> under our noses or over our heads. Is that fair or is that, again, anthropomorphizing well, them a bit? to a point, yeah. I think. I mean, they do clearly understand a relative value of things, fairness in trading those things, and they will act appropriately when tested on those sorts of um, tasks. I don't think they're passing coins back and forth or mm-hmm. anything like that. But we do know that shiny things show up in places that are relevant for people and especially with people who've been feeding them and, and doing things like that. And whether that's just coincidence or some sort of almost coercion or rewarding by the birds to get the people to keep giving food is is under investigation. And are there any limits to their ingenuity and resilience? Or another way to put this, you know, we've talked about them eating Cheetos and God knows, they're, it's almost like they're trash cans, they'll eat anything, but should we be cautious and wary? And then are there certain things we shouldn't do, even though we're, we feel in good nature it would help them, but in fact, it's damaging them? Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting if a high fat diet, for example, um, or hormonally laden foods that we often use and and put out. 
those could potentially have the same effects on on birds as they do on us. I don't know hmm. if that's the case, but the health of birds could be compromised by the the foods we give them, but more directly by the poisons we put in our environment. I mean, that's a serious issue uh, for these guys. And so the chemicals we use for fertilizers and pesticides or rodenticides are a big issue now with birds, including crows in, in urban areas and, and rural settings. So any of those sorts of things that could damage us that we are cautious with in the, within the environment can also damage crows and, and other sorts of uh, wildlife there. And then there's two other obstacles um, to crows and other birds in particular in our built area, and that's our windows, which they can't see the glass in. And, and if they're chasing one another for a territorial dispute, they could fly into a window and kill themselves. That's the second greatest source of mortality in birds um, worldwide. And by making windows more reflective with ultraviolet stickers or screens and things like that, we can reduce that risk. And it helps crows and lots of other birds. And then uh, the most important source of mortality are free-ranging cats. So keeping cats inside or in catios or on leashes or whatever, that's going to be the greatest benefit we can provide to crows and other birds that are out there. And along that line, even if we don't do it, if we allow nature to kind of provide a safe space for them by allowing coyotes to live in our cities, which they thankfully do here in Seattle and lots of other places, that's a great natural way to keep some of these other predators in check, and that's beneficial for crows and other birds. You know, when you're talking about um, bouncing against windows, it mm. occurs to me, I think, about my own windows and some of the sights we have seen. We have seen in Seattle, we're lucky to have bald eagles and hawks flying around in the middle of the urban center. And it's not uncommon to see a bald eagle being harassed by six, seven, eight, a dozen crows flying around. It looks like just random buzzing around the eagle. And it looks like a battle. <laughs> What's going on there? It must be territorial, but it looks like sometimes they're sacrificing themselves for, for something. It's a great observation. There are several motivations for that. Primarily, it's to move a predator out of an area. Maybe it's your nesting area or, or your roosting or feeding spot, but Eagles and hawks are predators on crows, and they're young especially. And so um, they will definitely scold and mob, we call it, when a group gathers up on a predator like that. And that tells the predator, we know you're here. It's not worth trying to be stealthy and hunt here, move on. And it also physically moves them on by, by pounding at them to get them to leave. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that's very interesting that's going on there is, again, back to a more social dimension. And it's usually the most dominant crow in the area that's coming the closest and starts the mm -hmm. attack on a predator like that. And that signals to other crows they're dominant and they're willing to take a risk for the, the reward of having this predator out of there. So they get some social benefit as well as immediate relief from a predator from doing that sort of thing. So it sounds like neighborhoods or, or families and not wouldn't necessarily interact with each other would band up on, on that case at times. Yeah, th that's a it's a benefit for everybody involved. Mm -hmm. So um, like sleeping together at night in a large group to reduce predation, gathering together in a group to get a predator out uh, is beneficial because you never know where that predator is going to go. Your territory or your neighbors, mm -hmm. the risk is still high. So we've been talking a lot about what happens in the Pacific Northwest and Seattle in particular, but are there other regions in the United States or the world for that matter that are known to have the highest concentrations of corvids or that are very uh, friendly environments for them? What, what would those be? Well, the tropics are the place for jays. So for jay diversity, places like Brazil, Costa Rica, Ecuador, Peru have a great diversity of, of the jays and very flashy ones. Asia has got a high diversity of magpies. That's really the specialty there. All of these places have a few crows and ravens, but really um, specialize in these other groups. That's been their center of evolution. And then more in the Northern Hemisphere, that's really been the center more for crows and ravens. So the United States, really, we're lucky. We've got, and if you go south a bit in North America, we've got four species of crows here. American crow, fish crow, tamalupus crow, and another Mexican species. And we've got one, two species of ravens as well. So we're as good as anywhere for that. Europe, you've got more of the, the large crow-like species there with rooks and a small jackdaw, as well as ravens and crows. Australia's got its collection of six or seven. So 
no place really stands out as being super diverse for the big black uh, birds, but the shiny magpies or really colorful jays, a um, couple of areas stand out there. So you have described them as pretty much thriving across the globe, but is there anything we should know about their status? Are any of them endangered or in, in peril for any reason? Yeah, a couple of the more specialized crows, um, in particular the Hawaiian crow, which only lives on the big island of Hawaii, and the Mariana crow, which lives on Guam and the island of Rota nearby. Those two are specialized kind of tropical uh, species. And even though they're crows, they are uh, among the rarest animals and, and birds in the world. There's only 60 Hawaiian crows, and they're all in captivity now with release plans pending. And there's probably fewer than 200 Mariana crows living in the wild, and there are captive propagation efforts underway for that animal as well. So even though crows thrive around us most places, not everywhere, they can also become um, rapidly endangered. And it just points out again our impact on the environment when we change it, when we harass or, or kill these animals. They're also vulnerable to that sort of uh, human activity. I'm curious about ceremonies and rituals. Do they have any ceremonies or ritualistic attachment to places? I've heard anecdotally that they recognize places where some of their own have died. And is that true? Or what's the, the relationship between death and places with them? Well, um, it's not like they come back to a cemetery mm -hmm. uh, situation like we would have. But they, what we have demonstrated is that they learn about dangerous people and places by observing where individuals die, yes. And so um, their geography may now include a layer that says something about relative danger that's, that's defined by, did I ever see a, a dead bird here or not? And we know that's the case because with experiments that Kaylee Swift, one of my students, has been doing, putting out stuffed birds that look like they're dead and then seeing the response of the birds that were feeding in this place, now a dead crow shows up. They don't feed there as regularly anymore. They stay away from it. And we know in the, the lab that the hippocampus of their brain is activated when they see somebody that was associated with a dead crow or a place associated with it. So they're learning about dangers by observing what's happened to other crows and where that has happened, certainly. But I don't think it it's a real ritualistic thing. It's more of a it's a very important thing to survival. Mm -hmm. I mean, if there's a killing zone, you want to stay away from it. And that just indicates there's an active predator here or maybe a dangerous light pole, for example, electrical pole um, that kills birds or traffic, whatever it may be. But those things are pretty consistent on our, especially in a human-dominated landscape. And so knowing where those occur by, by learning from somebody else's mistake mm -hmm. um, is very beneficial. Yeah, so definitely there's a distinction between describing a consistent repetition of event as ritualistic versus just pragmatic. There you go, right? pragmatic. But some folks swear, and maybe it's anecdotal and anthropomorphizing. <laughs> How about you try that word? Anthropomorphizing. Thank you. Um, they could swear that there are funeral-like events that happen when there's a dead crow around and there's mourning going on or something that they, they add an emotional layer that is beyond pragmatics. Do you think that's just us romanticizing the situation out of proportion? Well, uh, to some extent, yes, I do. What we know does happen, there's an incredible gathering when a bird is killed and um, other crows will come in there and scold much like they would scold an eagle or a hawk. They will do the same sort of behavior. I have photographs of dead crows that have sticks laid around them. Another one that a crow is standing next to a dead individual and it has just put a shiny piece of foil down on the ground by it. So there are some really curious things that happen that could very well be related to the loss of an important social partner. So I don't think it's wrong to anthropomorphize that the behavior in response to a dead crow would differ by who the crow is. Mm. We have no way to get at that right now other than these anecdotal observations. That's mm -hmm. all. I mean, it's just luck to see this sort of thing. In our experiments, we give a, just a neutral dead bird. It's not one that was attached to any particular individual. And we know at least in that situation, they're still learning a lot. They're paying a lot of attention to it. They're attracted to it. And they interact with that situation in a very pragmatic way, as you say. If it extends beyond that, 
I wouldn't be surprised, mm-hmm. but we don't know. And it's, it's interesting. I mentioned earlier that you're doing a lot of studies in neurobiology. Could you talk a little bit about what does that mean? Are you actually imaging their brains and how do you capture them and create an event to then capture the image? What's the logistics of that? Yeah, we, um, we are imaging their brains. I wanted to do that because it's a relatively non-invasive. I mean, it's still, you have to catch the bird, keep it in captivity and give it injections of, of a radioactive tracer. But when you're done with the bird, which for us would last six weeks at the most, you can release the bird back to the wild. And we know those birds continue to migrate or breed or whatever they were doing. So it's a disturbance for sure, but much better than wiring up their brain with electrodes and things to understand in finer detail what's going on. So what we do is we catch birds by attracting them to food. We use a net gun, which shoots a net over the bird. There's a lot of noise. It's a traumatic event. The bird's trapped. We, we then calm it down by putting it in a, a warm, safe, dark space, transporting it to a large flight cage where that bird will then uh, stay, for, stay with us while we do our experiments. Now, while he's with us in captivity, they can move around. There's other birds around them. We give them anything they want for, to eat. Eggs, chicken nuggets, um, Cheetos. Cheetos. We've given them Cheetos. They don't, when you're given a choice between a boiled egg, a a bit of chicken and Cheetos, they go for the egg and chicken every time. So, um, but anyway, they're well cared for. They have ad limitum food and, and interaction. And, and we give them interesting tasks like hanging food on a string to see if they can pull it up or um, other things to keep them interested and occupied, which is important with these birds because they are, you know, high energy. And um, they're, they're considering things all the time, it seems. Then we bring them over to the, to the med school where the micro scanner is. And we basically keep them there overnight. We then the next morning give them an injection into their abdominal cavity of this glucose with a radioactive label, just like you would get if you were going to be imaged. As they're processing that, we can let them do something. And as they're doing something... Whatever part of the body is demanding the most energy is taking up more of that tracer. So Mm -hmm. if they're considering a site, maybe it's a dead crow or a person that captured them or a person that took care of them, that part of the brain that's, that's assessing that the most is drawing up more and more of that glucose with this radioactive label, and it sticks there. We then, after about 20 minutes of the experiment, we anesthetize the bird. We scan its brain for where that tracer stayed, where it's concentrated most and least, then we uh, wake the bird up. It spends the night in back in the cage and can be released the next day. And we have a readout basically of the parts of its brain that are relatively laden with the tracer or not so laden with it. And that shows us where the brain was most active while it was assessing something that we had it assess uh, earlier in the experiment, be it the dead crow or the person that captured them, whatever. Mm-hmm. And from this, we've learned that they use their brain very similarly to the way we do. When they are confronted with somebody who is dangerous to them, their amygdala is activated on the right hemisphere of their brain. It's the same part of the brain on your same hemisphere that would be activated if you looked out and saw somebody that you learned was dangerous. When they see a dead crow and a new new person associated with it, their hippocampus is activated as they're learning about that danger associated with that person, we think. And when they see something like a hawk, that was kind of surprising. The most sophisticated decision-making part of the brain was activated in that case. And that makes some sense, you know, Mm. when we think about it, in that they're in a small cage, they can't get away from this hawk. Now, what do we do? Do I attack or not? And in the wild, they might choose to attack because Mm -hmm. they've got plenty of space. But in a small cage, they can't. And so they're probably running through scenarios of attack or flee Mm. at that point, and that would trigger different behaviors in them. You know, in philosophy, the problem of consciousness is hard Mm. enough for human beings (laughs) to begin with, and a lot of uh, cognitive scientist experiments around brain imaging is happening in order to find those constant correlations between human behavior, human thought, and physiological changes in the brain. So it's not surprising that we're doing the same with other animals, and whether the type of consciousness corvids have might just be just some levels of magnitude below ours. It just might be that we're more complex machines. And depending on your religious and philosophical views, there might be an extra layer, call it the soul or what have you. But 
we don't have to go there, but I think uh, finding those constant correlations between brain activity and behavior and reaction is clearly an important thing to do. Yeah, and with the imaging, it allows us to compare more directly to, to humans because that's how we assess human activity. If, if only we could talk to these guys mm-hmm. and they could answer questions and yeah. tell us, you know, are you really thinking about that or not? <laughs> yeah. Then we could talk about consciousness. But until we can have that sort of investigation and, mm-hmm. and report back. That bridge. Yeah. yeah, it's hard. I was at a conference recently with um, some people that are very critical of animal consciousness because they just make the claim that people will often not be aware of what they're doing, or they will tell you one thing when they're doing something else. So if, and and therefore the brain imaging in humans isn't always a reliable indicator of what they're really thinking and, mm-hmm. and how conscious they are about some action. So it's hard to, to make that link in birds, but I still think it's a really valid, interesting way to go. It's the only way we're going to get any insights on how complex they are in terms of assessing information they're bringing into their brain anyway. Given all the years that you've done this and, and everywhere you've gone, what is what are some of your most memorable experiences with corvids throughout all of those explorations and studies? I mean, what event or behavior made the most impact on you and really sticks with you as, as something that's just unforgettable? Well, a lot of the most un, unbelievable, unforgettable things uh, with corvids are told to me by other people because it just takes an army to to be lucky enough to see these really rare events. So like, for example, the providing of gifts by a crow to, uh, to other individuals that feed them often. I was pretty dubious of that when I first heard about it. I've since heard from many people about it. I've gotten pictures from people sent to me of birds dropping things in their feeder and, and such. So through their eyes, that's been one of the most amazing things to me. Through my own eyes, the experiments we did that demonstrated that crows recognize us after we capture them and and retain that information now for 11 years mm. and use it to adjust their behavior to act differently whenever they see us, that really sticks with me as um, something that I, I, I thought they for sure did, but not to the extent that they do. And to be able to demonstrate it in an experiment has been fun and interesting, so... To me, that's that's really the thing that stands out the most. And is that recognition exclusively visual, or do they have a sense of smell? Is it mostly just visual I, information? I think it's visual. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there may be other cues, but we can change. For example, we just change the mask we're wearing, and they, they don't respond. So it's not the way we walk, the way we talk, the way we smell, because you're the same person with a different face. And, and that's a visual signal. So I think it's it's visual. And for birds... Their primary sense is vision, um, not smell. Uh, mammals are much more smell-oriented, mm-hmm. not primates as much, but other mammals. So birds are primarily visual processors, and I think crows are expert at that. And those listeners who want to see this in action, there's the PBS documentary part of the Nature series. I forgot the, the name of the episode. You... A Murder of Crows. A Murder of Crows. Mm-hmm. If you Google it, Bing it, whatever your favorite search engine is, you will find it. So tell us how listeners could learn more about crows, ravens, and other corvids. Which of your books should they consult first, or where should they go online to explore more? Well, they could go to our website at the University of Washington, just Google Avian Conservation Lab, and on there you will find references to lots of primary literature and um, blogs by some of my students about crows. So that's a good place to go. I think the Cornell uh, website is also great. And especially Kevin McGowan is a colleague at Cornell that studies crows and has really worked much more on the individual family organization because he's banded birds for a long time. And his work could be readily found there about crows. There are, there's lots of great books out there. The ones Tony Angel and I did um, in the Company of Crows and Ravens, if you're interested in the connection to people, that would be the, the place to go and kind of general behavior about the birds. If you're interested more in some of the really bizarre things they do, like funerals and um, being aggressive to hawks and things, then The Gifts of the Crow is, is a book that takes on that sort of approach. There's a lot of great resources. Mm-hmm. People are fascinated in crows. If you're more interested in just ravens, Mind of the Raven by Bern Heinrich is also a good one to show how they uh, live in the, in the wild and follow wolves and other <laughs> sorts of scavengers and hunters. And what are your future plans? What facets of corvid existence is your next frontier of exploration? 
Well, I have two students working, one on vocalizations, because we really still would like to understand more about what they're actually saying um, when they utter all these different calls and, and kind of gurgles and rattles. But so communication is still very interesting to me. And secondly, the, this funeral rituals, Kaylee Swift has been working on this now for four years, and we're starting to get a, a more complete picture of how they respond when they find a dead crow. And I personally would like to know how that changes when they find a dead crow that they really knew. And we could potentially do that with anesthesia in the lab. We mm. may end up doing that. It's, it's an ethical thing for me. I'm not sure if I'm ready to do that yet, but it would be fascinating to demonstrate if there is a really emotional component. I just want to make sure if there was, we could, we'd make sure we're ready to document it. And um, I think we could, but it requires a little more thought. Yeah, that would be fascinating because a lot of people are talking about those, those yeah. human-like uh, experiences. Thank you so much for being here today. Now I'm going to walk, have my usual walks in Seattle and, and look at those companions that are following me around and who recognize me in a completely different way. So thank you for spending time with us today. My pleasure, Eric. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share, like, or leave a review about this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow. As with all episodes, this episode has a companion article on our site where you can find out more about John, more about crows and other corvids, and it includes some video I shot recently of thousands of crows coming into roost after a day of shenanigans. I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io where more podcasts, videos, and written content live. And of course, you can always subscribe and receive the latest, greatest episode on your favorite app and device. Find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn. Take your pick. Until the next time, this must be the place. <laughs>